All righty. We doing okay today? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, we're alive. We're well. Man, first hour I asked a bunch. I said, man, it seems like everyone's pretty sleepy. Um, but we woke up pretty quick. I, I definitely got some good heckling first hour. So I need to adjust some of the things that I'm going to say just to make sure uh, we're all on the same page here. But I uh, had a great first hour. Um, welcome to Northwest Hills. My name is Josh Carstensen. I am the lead pastor here. I uh, just want to off the bat say uh, that we hope, uh, our, our desire would be that this would be a place where everyone feels welcomed. Um, whether you've never come to a church in your life, whether you were born in the second aisle and have been here for 85 years, um, we, all, we want you to feel like you, you belong here. Um, it's, a, it's a place where you can explore uh, the big questions of life. Does God exist? What is he like? Uh, if he's like, um, what does that mean for my life? What am I supposed to do? Um, but ultimately, we, we want this to be a place um, where we encourage one another, where we do uh, kind of peek our eyes up a little bit and, and just ask God, who, who are you and what are you like and, and how should I then live? So we hope that this is a place where you, you feel that way. Um, we're going to be in Romans 5 today. We got, uh, we got a, a bunch to do there. Um, I will say, if you're, if you're someone who's like really dialed into the program and you're going like, wait a second, we were supposed to have an interview with Will and Renee, like where are they? Um, Good and bad news, uh, their baby, they got a new baby there, ministry partners, and the baby is sick, so they're not here, uh, so they didn't want to come up on stage. But if you want to go get sick with the baby, they're going to be having a baby shower afterwards, and they will be here for that. So I probably will not go to that, um, but I'm joking, I might go, we'll see. But um, please, uh, if you know them and want to be an encouragement to them, they're gonna, they will be over there despite sickness. Um, perhaps next week we'll get them up here. But it does create a little bit of an opportunity for us because we have a good eight to ten minutes extra in the service that the Spirit can move. And so naturally, Justin, our, our music guy, and I had this debate like, another song, more sermon, like back and forth. So we kind of landed on a happy medium where there's really neither. It's like this space at the end where we're just going to be quiet and kind of sit. So that'll be nice. I hope I don't preach too long so we can have some of that space. Um, So yeah, welcome to Northwest Hills. I want to start uh, today off by really saying my heart for today um, is a little bit different than where we've been in uh, Romans in terms of like an argument um, because Paul, the, the author who's been writing, who has written the book that we've been reading, um, is, is very like dialed in, articulate, making a case for who God is, who we are. Um, but I want to kind of pause today, and really um, my hope is pretty simple, and it's that we would walk out of here hearing these words um, from God, that God says to each of us, I love you. I think we can kind of forget um, kind of the, the emotion side of, of what it means to be a child of God when we're thick in an argument. And uh, it's a 16-chapter argument. It is a legit argument. Um, and not like a conflicting argument, but, but a, a proof, if you will. And so um, five weeks in, I kind of want to just pause a little bit, look at the big picture of why is it that Paul is making this argument and what does he want us to feel out of this? Um, and so today is going to be a little bit more on the feel side uh, than just the logic, but we got to get to the logic to back up the feels. So I do want you to hear, I love you. This is exactly what God wants us to hear today um, from this text. 
So as we get into that, though, I want to talk about an article I read this last week. Um, and this is I got to be I got to be careful because I, I set some fires first hour, but it's okay. It was fun. We had a lot of fun. So I was reading an article uh, in the Week magazine, and the title of the article was "Learning to Accept Your Decline." Uh, this is a magazine that I subscribe to. It's a great magazine. It doesn't have a ton of original authorship. It kind of just takes different articles from all over the place, uh, kind of condenses them down to like the biggest articles, like two pages maybe. Well, this article was an article that was originally published in The Atlantic, and uh, I read the article in the week, and I, I loved it so much. I'm like, I want to go read the article in The Atlantic. So I read that too, and that article was titled, Your Professional Decline is Coming Much Sooner Than You Think. Um, <laughs> the article talks about uh, the author, 55 years old, He's on an airplane at one point a number of years ago, and on the airplane behind him, he hears an older gentleman say, um, I wish I was dead. And it kind of hit him hard. Uh, he heard the, the, uh, the guy's spouse say to him, uh, honey, you're, you're okay, like, you're doing good. Like, and uh, it made him kind of think in his mind, like, I wonder what this guy is like. Um, and I'll, I'll read a couple quotes from this. He, he, says, he says, I imagined that this was someone who had worked hard all of his life in relative obscurity. Someone with unfulfilled dreams, perhaps of the degree he never obtained, the career he never pursued, the company he never started. He, he heard these words, I wish I were dead, and he thought of someone who was kind of on the outside of society, someone who's a little bit of a social outcast, someone who never quite reached their full potential, if you will. Um, but to his surprise, when the plane landed and he got up, he turned around and he actually recognized the guy. This was a famous person who spoke these words. Uh, the, the author doesn't say why he was famous, but he says that he was famous for his courage, patriotism, and accomplishments many decades ago. Um, as, the, as this famous person was getting off the plane, the pilot on the plane uh, is out of the cockpit. You know, sometimes you get the United guy, hey, and he gives little kids a little pin. Um, the pilot sees this famous person and, and says, um, wow, thank you for your accomplishments. You've been a hero of mine as I grew up. So this is obviously someone with um, some serious rec- recognition and someone with some clout. Um, but the article goes on to talk about a, a couple of things, primarily about happiness about ability and about decline. Those are kind of the main ideas. And happiness is something that we've, we talk about, we're kind of obsessed with this idea in our culture. We talk about this all the time. The last few decades, there's been all kinds of studies that come out, um, that have come out talking about happiness, which is really interesting um, in terms of like where we are in a nation, in terms of all the access that we have to everything. We're actually a pretty unhappy people by and large. Um, I'm, I'm currently reading a book um, right now called The Progress Paradox. It was written a few decades ago. Fascinating, though. The, the tagline is how life can become better while people feel worse. Um, and and it's, it's this concept that we have so much, yet we don't feel very happy. Well, the article that I read in the week was talking about um, our happiness and our abilities uh, just kind of as, uh, as humans and how we develop. And it's interesting. You can, you can graph happiness, happiness on a curve, generally speaking. There's been all kinds of studies in the last couple of decades that talk about our happiness. Now, uh, maybe this is surprising, maybe it's not. In our, 20, in our 20s, we're generally, generally the happiest we perhaps will ever be, perhaps, in our 20s. And kind of bad news is, like, 30s, 40s, Kind of like this downward trend, right? So I'm 35. I'm, I'm just like, oh, okay, well, I'm headed down there. Awesome. Like, here we go. And um, the reality is we, we kind of peak out, generally speaking, the lowest of our happiness in kind of our early 50s. Um, and then there's good news to come. Like, good news to come. Uh, you kind of rise up a little bit. 
Um, particularly for women, women will, generally speaking, rise in their happiness. Um, men will to a point, and then around 75, the average man um, kind of hits another round of kind of angst and depression, and actually suicide rates for men uh, go up quite a bit at 75, kind of around that point. Um, and so, again, we, we kind of reach our maximum sadness uh, at around that early 50s age. But it's interesting because uh, there's an inverse relationship to our abilities, um, primarily in terms of our vocation. Uh, In your 20s, you're kind of worthless, and you're just learning some things. Um, And I mean that in love and respect. (laughs) But you don't know anything yet. And when you're 35, you're still just kind of learning. So you rise, like, into your 30s, you're learning more, and then your 40s. And then, ironically, right around the early 50s, like, you actually do for most people, not all professions, um, most professions, you kind of hit your peak in your, in your early to mid-50s. Um, th- there is some exception. Um, some things, uh, the article was talking about, like, uh, there are certain, like, if you're a professor of history and you need, like, a certain body of knowledge, um, the older you get, actually, the better you are, potentially, at your job. Um, but it's interesting. So, so at the height of your career, you're, you're least happy. And then as your career kind of generally wanes out, you begin to get more and more happy. And the article goes on to talk about why. Why is this? Why is it that as we get better at life, at our careers, we actually get more and more unhappy, generally speaking? Um, the article ultimately talks about two kind of contributing factors to, um, to happiness and, and depression. Those being that of usefulness, and then the big one that we're going to kind of land on today is, uh, is actually the fear of death. Um, the idea that as we grow and we get older, um, death becomes more and more of a reality that we all will face at some point. Um, so kind of thinking this through. So like when you're in your early 20s, everything in front of you is potential, right? Like the potential spouse you might marry someday, the potential house you might get, the potential career you might get. And that's all pretty exciting. It's like, yeah, I could, I could, I might, I might, I might, perhaps. But then as we get older and as we step into these things, whether it's a relationship, whether it's the house, whether it's the career, whatever it is, um, the, the reality that, man, the potential um, becomes less and less. And we are kind of faced with the reality that, man, at some point we are actually going to, to die, Um, The author says this about his own fear in life. He says, I suspected that my own terror of professional decline is rooted in this fear of death. Ultimately, as as we kind of reach these peaks and these uh, progression in life, it can, and this is where the gospel flips all this, it can kind of steal us of our joy and of our peace. And so what do we do about this? What do we do about the reality that we want this peace, we want this joy, but man, because the reality that death is coming, it kind of steals this from us. How can we combat this? And the author gives a couple different ideas. Uh, one of the things that he talks about is these uh, Therabada Buddhist societies in Sri Lanka, uh, in uh, Thailand. And he says that there's these communities um, that have pictures, large pictures hanging on the walls of dead corpses. Uh, oh, yeah, right? Um, in different uh, stages of decay. The idea being 
that um, it kind of desensitizes you to the reality that this is where life leads to all of us at some level. And so if you're kind of just regularly around death, then maybe it will, it will make you feel like, okay, well, that's my future at some point. Maybe I should make the best of life right now. I don't know if that's like the best thing. I don't know that we're going to do that here. Um, <laughs> ironically, though, like we have a cross up, which is, I mean, that's a terrible symbol of death, but it flips because there's life too. Um, he, the, the author is actually a Catholic, and he does give some very, actually, really helpful gospel-centered um, insight into how we can have some hope and kind of combat some of this fear. Um, but he ends with kind of this indirect charge um, for humanity. Um, he, he talks about humans are on this search for both peace and joy. And until we are okay with the fact that we will all die and, and we will be um, at some point in decline at some level of our cognition and our abilities, then we'll never, ever be able to have kind of this deep peace and this deep joy. And so as I'm reading this article, it's just constantly bringing me back to where we are in the study of Romans. I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking, man, this is like parallel. Like we, we, for a while, were at that low point in Romans, right? Where you're like, oh my goodness, like this is really depressing. Um, if you've been following our study for the first couple weeks, all we got was like really, really bad news. We got this news that, that basically says all humanity, whether you are a God-fearer or whether you don't know him, like we live in all kinds of angst. We live in depression. We live in fear, uh, ultimately for a couple of reasons. One being um, we will have to face God someday. And because all of us have lived not how we ought to, judgment is coming. But more than that, we all live under the reality that God lets us chase things that we shouldn't. And the result of that chasing is, is scary. There's this long list of what life looks like when we chase things that we shouldn't. We read this in chapter one. We read that we live in unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice and envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness and gossips and slanderers and we're haters of God and we're insolent, haughty, boastful, we're broken sexually, we disobey our parents, we're foolish, we're faithless, we're heartless, we're ruthless. On top of that, in verse 32, it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And so translation, stress, like, oh my goodness, this is really, really bad, right? So what are we going to do? We've got this moment where everything is, is far from God. We've got nothing but separation from God coming. And we're at this moment, we're like, oh my goodness, like death is coming. I, I'm not living like I should. What do I do? Right, that's, what we're, that's where we were for the first two and a half weeks of our study. But then like the glorious moment comes, right? If you've been here, this is, this is that uh, Romans 3.21 moment. Like, oh wait, but now, like those two fabulous words, like but now, and we're introduced to this whole concept, kind of these three big themes that we've been fleshing out over the last week. But now we get justification freely by faith through Jesus. And so this, this whole great news that, my goodness, we're justified now. And, and it's a weird word. It's a theological term. But basically, it's the idea that previously, when we stood before God, we didn't have the right application. We didn't have the, the right job history. We weren't getting in. We had no hope there. But we were given someone else's transcript. 
Right? This transcript essentially is Jesus's. He took his life and he scratched off his name. He put our name on there. He gave it to the Father and we actually, it's called imputed. We get his right standing and it becomes ours. And this is such good news. Last week, the question was, well, how do we get this? This sounds way too good to be true. How do we get this incredible um, right standing? How do I get this application that's not mine because mine alone is not good? And, uh, and Justin, our, our worship guy, talked about um, we get this through faith. The, the natural bent in, in human desires is we're going to want to try to work for it because we try to work for everything. That's just what it means to be human often. If you want to get something, you work for it. But that's not the case with the gospel. The gospel says you can't work for it. You cannot earn someone else's transcript. It's a free gift, and you can receive it simply by saying that I believe in you, God, and I believe that what you're saying is true. Uh, the example was Abraham from, from chapter 4 that we got. Um, so now we have all this. We've, we've, we've got someone else's transcript. We get it by faith, and it leaves us with a couple of big questions, two primary questions that we're going to try to answer today. The first question being, well, what should happen then to the fear and the angst and the depression that I feel now, even if I'm someone who perhaps received this right standing. I have someone else's transcript. Why do I still feel angsty? Why do I still kind of, why am I afraid of death still at some point? And then the second question, which we're really just going to touch on in this room, is how is all that possible? How is it possible that one man a few thousand years ago, through his life and death on the cross, how is that, a, how is that right that I can get uh, an entrance and an access to God because of that one man? So we're going to just touch on that. But I want to get to the first one, uh, the first question. And essentially that is like, okay, you've got a right standing. You, through faith, how should that make me feel? How does that make me feel? Like what, what is the emotive response in a human who, who has been given someone else's transcript. And this is the moment where I want to say this again, and I'm going to say this about 50 times today. This is that moment where God says to each of us, I love you. This is what that justification is. Like if you were to boil down justification, and yeah, I'm not giving it in its complete definition, but justification in terms of like a human emotive response would be God saying to you, I love you love you. You ever had that moment? Do you remember, perhaps if you, if you were dating someone, when someone broke those words at first? Remember what that felt like? I remember what it felt like um, when Megan and I were dating. We've been dating since high school, my wife and I. Um, we'll be married, I guess, 14 years in a month or so, a couple months. Um, the first time she, she broke the news to me was on an answering machine. So for some of you young kids have no idea what that is, call me later. Um, and it was like the tape recorder one, like not even the digital one, like you had to rewind the tape. And, and she said it, and I literally, I rewound it again. Like, did she really just say that? Like, to me? Oh, my gosh. I remember the next time she said it, she was driving away in her, her little car. I was, I was in the front yard. She was taking off. She goes, oh, I love you. I'm like, whoa. Like, you love me? Like, you remember... Um, Maybe you used to write letters. Um, this was before, I guess maybe AOL was a thing, Instant Messenger. And if you liked someone, like kind of the first breaking of, of that affection, you would write, love, yeah. Do you remember that? Like, it was love, yeah. That was the first thing that you said. And then it went to love you. 
And then it was like the trifecta. It was the I love you. Right? You remember what I'm talking about. You totally remember what I'm talking about. And yeah. Um, this has been around for a long time, by the way. It's not just me. Um, this moment where we get justification, this moment where we get someone else's transcript is literally the moment where God looks you in the face and he says, I love you. And what we get in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, are basically him unpacking, this is what I mean when I tell you I love you. This is how your heart should feel. This is how your life should look. This is what your gut should say when you hear these words. So I'm going to read this to us. I'm I'm actually going to ask that we would stand. This is Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And I'm going to read a little bit. When I'm done, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you're going to say, thanks be to God. So here we go. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, that big therefore is like you've been justified. You've been justified by faith. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may take a seat. So kind of three quick things that we see uh, really quickly here. Uh, in this text, again, this is, this is like how my heart should feel when God the Father looks me in the face and says, Josh, I love you. This is what it means. It means this. The first thing we see is that I have peace with God. This is an interesting reality. Um, if you were paying kind of close attention for the first four chapters, um, if before this moment... I did not have peace with God. I was at war with God, which is, a, which is kind of a harsh thing to say. And, and honestly, in our culture, no one wants to say that out loud. But the reality is if you are not justified, then you are at war with God. You are literally doing the things that you ought not to do. You are trying to steal the throne, which is what happened with Adam. And we are at war with God. But when we get justification, we have peace with God. This is not the peace of God. You know, sometimes we think about like just like that tranquility that like, okay, I can breathe. I'm not anxious anymore. I have the peace of God. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about you have peace with God because at first you did not have peace. You were enemies. Okay. That's the first kind of thing. We got to get that. That's huge. The second thing is that we have access now. We see this. We have obtained access into the grace in which we stand. So when someone says, I love you, Right? And, and I mean in that real, like, I love you like a lover forever, my wife type of I love you. She has full access. She can come visit anytime. She's full, like, my heart's there. Let's talk. I'm open. You don't have to schedule an appointment. Like, it's very different than, like, Justin saying, love you, man. Like, yeah, I love you, but you can come over sometimes. Um, 
you can come over most of the time. But, um, but when God says that to us, he's saying like, I'm always available. You can come to me through faith anytime. This is through prayer. This is through being in his presence, through thinking about him, through reading his word. We have full access once the Father says, I love you. And that is a present reality. The last reality, and this is huge, he says this. He says, we rejoice in our hope of the glory of God. Simple translation, we look forward to heaven, right? Where you're going to be with me fully in my presence, completely unveiled. We will see each other face to face at some point. Uh, And then he gives kind of this future reward. But then he gives kind of this reminder. And he says, reality of life on this earth is that it's going to be hard. He goes on and he talks about suffering. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is interesting because you get this kind of feeling like if God says, I love you, you get this idea that, man, the, the Lord of the universe loves me. He's kind of reminding us that even though God says, I love you, it doesn't mean that everything in life is just going to be easy. He promises, like, actually, like, suffering is going to come, and it's going to produce all these things within you. But there's a hope of a future. So when God says, I love you, he's saying a a few things. The first thing, he says, it's a past tense, meaning, like, we were at war, but now we're not. Present tense, you can enter me uh, me through prayer anytime you want. You can stand in my, my grace and my favor. And then in the future, we have a future together in heaven. Now, I love what Paul does here. Um, Paul, in the next whole section here, he basically makes an argument built on this type of thinking. He says, well, here's the deal. It's really easy for someone just to write and say, hey, don't worry about life being really hard now. Once you die, everything's going to be okay. Like, how do you refute that? Like, okay, I guess. Like, like, how can you prove that heaven exists? How can you prove that this God is who he says he is? Because, like, that's such an easy thing to say. Like, anyone can just say with their mouth, oh, yeah, suffering, you got this because future glory is coming. But Paul gives an argument, and he says, here's why you can believe these words that I'm telling you. He says this, starting in verse 6. This is why theology is so important. He says, for while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Um, If you haven't been studying that all week, that was a lot of words, a lot of big words. Um, Essentially, he's making this argument, though. He's saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing out these huge promises I'm throwing out like, hey, you've got future coming, and let me tell you why you can believe this. You can believe this because of this scenario. Imagine that you have a kid, right? Your kid is assaulted by someone. This is a terrible assault. Um, 
the perpetrator is captured, uh, he's tried, and he's, he's got a life sentence. This is a terrible assault. Um, so he's in prison for life, um, but because of whatever, whatever, he gets out after five years. Right? Like, as a parent, you're going, like, this feels so wrong. This is heinously evil. This person needs to be punished. Well, you're out hiking one day, and you're hiking with your child who was previously assaulted, and you come across a river, and in the river is, um, is this person who is in some rapid, in some eddy somewhere, and they're going to drown unless you save them. And the reality is, like, the human inside of all of us is like, where's the rocks? Like, where's my gun? Let me put this person out of their misery. Like, let's just bring justice here and now. Um, this is what the text is saying is, is, the re, is the picture. But more than that, it's saying like in order to, to actually rescue this person, it's not like you can just jump in and just pull them out and they'll be okay. Um, the reality of the gospel is like in this scenario, like for you to save this person is going to be like sending your little kid in to go push this person out of the way to give them freedom, but you know it's going to cost your kid's life. Like, well, wait a second. Like, that, that just does not feel right at a human level. Like, this feels so wrong. And that's exactly what Paul was saying happened through Jesus. You, you, you got to just soak on these words. While we were enemies, that's when we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So here's the thing. He roots his argument in history. He roots his argument of you have a future coming, and how can you believe that? You can believe that by looking back to the past. And the past says, God saved you when you were enemies. You've got history. You've got the cross. You can see that. If he saved you while you were enemies, don't you think he's able to save you into the future as well? He will hold on to you forever. If he saved you then, I promise you he will hold on to you in the future. This is why this matters to us. This matters to us for a number of reasons, and this is one of our core doctrines here at Northwest Hills. If God saved you while you were enemies, he will hold on to you forever. All right, so think about this. Think about like maybe you have a friend, maybe you have a child, maybe you have a parent who, for whatever reason, they professed faith in Christ at some point. This is real, this is genuine. They received Jesus' application. They received his transcript. They were justified. And for whatever reason in life, they don't seem to be walking with the Lord. God said, I saved you when we were enemies. Not like when you were, hey, I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm all in. No, like I saved you when we were enemies. I can hold on to you until the end. And I can gain you access with me forever. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled with God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And if that's not good news, I don't know what is. He finishes it out. And really this, this should be a whole separate sermon. And, and I, this is the hard thing about going through Romans is um, I'm just, I'm just going to give kind of some brief outline to this whole second section, answering the question of, well, how is this possible? Like on, on a logical level, like, how is it possible that through one person, like, billions of people can now be saved? Like, what's the logic behind that? Because Paul, he's not irrational. He, he actually makes the case. 
And this, uh, this whole section is an incredibly technical section. I'm going to do my absolute best to make this as simple as possible. But if you're someone who loves the technical side of language and theology, like uh, the second half of Romans 5 is, is your bread and butter. Go to that. But I'm going to give kind of just a brief outline of how this is possible. And then we'll land the plane here. So um, he summarizes this in verse 18, how this is all possible. And he says this. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, uh, that one trespass being Adam, our first man, um, so one act of righteousness, that's Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. For as the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Okay, simple, simple translation. Adam sinned, brought death into the world. Death in the world uh, uh, is, is for all of us. Adam com- or Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life, he gives access to life forever. So what does this section look like? It's kind of broken down into three main parts. The first part is in 12 to 14, talking about the life of Adam. Um, The second part is looking at Adam and Jesus together and comparing and contrasting the two. Uh, The first section in 14 to 17 is talking about how they were different. The last section in 18 to 21 is talking about how they were the same. So the argument goes like this. And again, I'm just going to try to make this as simple as possible. As Adam is introduced, um, there's kind of a threefold argument. The argument is simple. Um, Sin enters the world through one man, Adam. Okay? Because of this sin, death was the consequence. So Adam, he rebelled against God. God said, here's the garden. Name the animals. Here's an amazing wife. Go have fun. Living life in the garden. Name some animals. Love me. Just don't do this one thing. And Adam goes, huh, I've got all the freedom in the world except this one thing. What do I want to do? I want to do this one thing. So he does the one thing. He wants to be like God. He wants the crown for himself. He sins. The result of sin, the consequence is death. Okay? Um, the last piece of that is all of us, all mankind sin, therefore we all die. Okay, and then he talks about, well, how is it that we all died in Adam and how can we all live in Christ? So this is where things get super technical and I'm going to try to make this really, really simple. So in Adam, Adam is, um, is the representative for all of us. The legal term is, um, uh, what's the legal term? It is a, the federal headship is the theological term, but when you have power of attorney, right? Power of attorney for someone uh, is when you have a legal representative for this person. So Adam was all of ours legal representative in God, uh, before God. Adam was not just picked. He wasn't just like, oh, God just said, let me just pick someone. Adam was literally created for the purpose of being our federal headship, of being our representative. So in Adam, when Adam, di- when Adam sins, he's not just a representative for us. I actually sin in Adam also. Again, this gets super technical in Greek language. I'm not going to go down this road. But we as Western individuals, we like to think that before God, I will stand and he will only look at my life and he will judge me based on my life. Well, the reality is before I was even born, because I was human, I never had a shot because in Adam, sin reigned, death reigned, and Adam was the perfect representative for all of humanity, and I actually sinned with Adam in Adam in the very beginning, which is really bad news. This is really bad news, but it's also really good news 
Because if all humanity is condemned under one man who sinned, it means that there's a possibility that if there's another man who lives perfectly, we can have another federal headship. We can have a better representative. The problem is, though, that if this person's human, they don't have a shot because they're human and they're under Adam and they're going to fail, which is why Jesus needed to be fully human and fully God, because the fully godness of Jesus made it to where he wasn't under that curse and was able to live the perfect life, therefore imputing to us his right standing before God. You got that dialed in? No problem. Go chew on the rest of Romans 5. I'm going I'm, I'm to skip a huge chunk here. Um, there's kind of three um, distinctives that happen between Adam and Jesus that we see in this text. The first one is that their motives. Their motives are totally different. Adam wanted to be like God, right? That was, that was the invitation. You want to be like God? You want to know good from evil? Do this. You will be like him. And he did that in... Um, he wasn't God. Jesus, on the other hand, he perfectly obeyed the law. He did not sin because he was God. Uh, the results of their lives were different. Adam sinned, brought death. Jesus lived perfectly and brought life. Um, the final question that I think Paul asks um, indirectly is, well, why would Adam have to, or why did Jesus have to die then? Why not just live? Like if we can get his imputed righteousness, if we can get his perfect life, why, why not just live the perfect life and, you know, retire in the Bahamas and call it good at 90? Like, why would he have to die on a cross? Um, ultimately, he has to die to pay for our rebellion and our punishment. Um, not only did he give us access to the future, but he had to pay for the past. He had to pay for the things that we have done and will do as the right due punishment for our sin in a giant display, in a giant heart saying, I love you. That's why Jesus had to die. So in wrapping this all up, um, I'll finish just with a simple question. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not sure where you're at, do you need to hear the words again, I love you? That's what justification is. It's God saying that you can have peace. You, you don't have to fear death. I promise you life gets hard, but in the end you'll be with me. And the only way that you can do that is simply by believing, by saying, God, I believe that what you're saying is true, and I believe that you're able to do it. It's nothing that you can do. It's a simple act of faith in the promise of it all through the life and death of Jesus is that we will be with God both now, we have that access now, and in the future because of these little words, I love you. Would you pray with me? Father God, um, I thank you that you tell us um, both with your words, with really deep theological arguments, that you love us. That while we were still enemies, Jesus, you died for me. And the truth of that in my life, what that means for me is I don't have to be angsty. I don't have to worry. I don't have to live in fear. But I can live in perfect peace knowing that, God, you, you've got me. I don't have to try to conjure up the right heart and the right attitude at the right moment to feel loved. God, I've got full access to you because you've said I love you. Thank you for that. We love you, Jesus. Amen.